Hey listeners, welcome to Crafty, the show about amazing people and their craft. On today's show, we are talking with Mark Sullivan. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Crafty. Greetings everyone, this is Nick Dole of the Crafty Podcast, here with Mark Sullivan, author of several books, and he is on the phone with me today over Skype. How are you doing today, Mark? Good, how are you? Not bad, not bad at all. So um, I just had a, a few questions for you with our listeners today. Um, sure. When did you realize you wanted to be a writer? Uh, I was seven years old. I was in parochial school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I got in a fist fight with another kid. And I got grabbed from behind by this six-foot-tall nun named Sister Mary Joseph, and she was the school disciplinarian, and she was also my mother's best friend. So I figured I was screwed, and um, she and she told me that my punishment was I was going to have to write a short story for the school grades one through eight short story contest. And I was, I, I don't know where it came from. I still don't. Uh, but when I realized that I wasn't going to be, you know, punished, punished, I went, okay. And I went home and I went upstairs. I had no idea what I was going to write about. I sat there for about a half an hour and I was getting nervous, and all of a sudden, a rabbit went ripping through our backyard, and about five seconds later, a dog went ripping right after it. And so I wrote about that, and I won. Really? Yeah. What ended up happening to the rabbit, if I don't, you know, if you don't mind me asking? It escaped. Look at that. Phew! <laughs> <laughs> So all because of a fight. <laughs> yes, that's how it started. That's that's probably the first and only time I'll ever hear something like that being the origin story of an author. I, I know. True though. Yeah, yeah. So, um, how long does it take you to write a book? Uh, anywhere between a year and ten years. So I mean, I guess it's um, reasonable. <laughs> Yeah, so some stories come out in a year, and some stories come out in 10. My most recent book, Beneath the Scarlet Sky, uh, which has been a huge best-selling novel, uh, that one took me 10 years, from the time I heard the story to the time I saw it published. So uh, does that mean that you might have several books being written at the same time? Always. Oh boy! <laughs> yes, I'm usually working on two to three projects at once. I found it hard to. It, it helps me to work that way. It, it's like, you know, someone who's building cabinets and they work on one for a while and then they do another one, and you know, it's it it actually helps you to just turn your thoughts to a completely different project, and your subconscious continues to work on it. So when you get back to it, it seems fresh. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe maybe the inspiration from another story could help out with the with the other one in the back of your head. I I don't know. I've never tried it. Yeah, it it works for me. It was suggested to me uh, by my writing partner James Patterson, who I write with uh, quite a bit. He uh, was the one who recommended I started doing it, and I gave it a try. And to my surprise, I found that it worked. 
Yeah, James Patterson is a pretty big name. I was shocked when I was uh, when I was told who I was interviewing today. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's amazing. He's the smartest story person I've ever known, and great guy to work with. Well, it's, it's shocking that he's your writing partner. It's just like that's a that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, uh, I'm really blessed like that, and uh, to be able to work with him, I always tell people it's every time I talk to him, it's like talking to Yoda. You know, it's it's a really advanced level of thinking about fiction and books, and um, I love working for the guy. Yeah, but I also love writing my own books too. So I've got the best of both worlds. So do you guys uh, help each other out in ideas and anything like that? Sure. He reads my stuff. Perfect. Yeah. Earlier than anybody. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I mean, I have an absolute expert's eye on it all the time. That's if fantastic. I want it. He did. Yeah. So you yeah, guys it's one of the it. best parts about working with him. Yeah, you guys get to feed off of each other's ideas, and um, well, I guess yeah, it's kind of like a hive mind a little bit, maybe. Yeah, uh, it. Every time I get off the phone with him, I've learned something. You think he's learned anything from you? I hope so. You'd have to ask him. <laughs> uh, maybe one day. Maybe one day. Yeah. So, um, how do you um? How do you uh, go about pulling the reader in uh, from the first chapter and increasing intensity as time goes on within the book? Um, You know, I try to find a place where I'm opening the story in the middle of action. That's one of the most common ways to do it. And so you don't really understand as a reader what's going on, but it's dynamic and it draws you in. And then it allows you over the course of the running plot to fill the reader in with what happened right up to the point at which we start the story that's how i usually do it that's brilliant because uh the most common complaint i hear is uh the first chapter never gets me into it not from you of course yeah no i try not to uh it happens there's certain books that when you write them they by their nature they they start out a little slow Um, and there's no way around it because anything else would be forcing the issue. And you always got to remember that a lot of times great characters start in a sense of naivety, you know, their innocence, and it helps if the writer shows you they're innocent before their trials begin. Gotcha. So uh, you write more of a character-driven story rather than setting. That's correct. Although setting plays a big part in a lot of my books. Yeah, yeah. But it all begins with the characters, always. Yeah, so so how do you form your ideas for the book you've written? Um, I, you know, I usually doodle and I have an idea, I have a premise, uh, and I work from there. Uh, If I'm writing a mystery or suspense story, um, if I'm writing historical fiction, I work in a completely different way. Um, I'm usually working from historical facts. Uh, in the case of Beneath the Scarlet Sky, I was working from actual interviews with Pino Lella that I did about 10 years ago. And I was 
I researched the book for, you know, 10 years, multiple trips to Europe to meet with him, to meet with historians. And I gradually was able to gather enough that I could start to write. And that's how you do it. You take a stab at it. I think I probably failed oh, at least 10 times, 15 times before I started to believe that I actually had the rhythm of the book. Yeah. So uh, just just for the sake of uh, the listeners who might not know what the book is, uh, what's the premise of Scarlet Sky? Like, what's the story about? Yeah, Beneath the Scarlet Sky uh, is a fictional retelling of the true story of Pino Lella, who was a 17-year-old boy who led Jews escaping Nazi-occupied Italy over the top of the Winter Alps into Switzerland. And, the, and then through a series of remarkable circumstances in the spring of 1944, he became a spy inside the German high command and fell in love with a woman who haunted him the rest of his life. Oh, <laughs> is she because she was on the wrong side of the fence? You never know. I'll have to, you'll have to read it. I guess so, yeah. No, no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. So um, when was yeah. your first book published, and uh, how old were you at the time? Uh, my first novel was published in 1994, and I was, I don't know, 94, 98. I was like 36. Wow, I was born in 1994. Right. <laughs> so, so we, we spoke a little bit about James Patterson, but in your case, uh, did you ever think that you'd get as big as you did? You know, no, uh, I did not. I knew what the odds were against me of, of getting to the point where you actually have a reputation and, and a, a lot of readers. Um, I hoped that was my goal, but there were many times I thought it would never happen. And then it did. So what, what's the process of getting to where you were? I, I understand publishers can be kind of a tricky thing. Um, the process is to write a lot, is to sit your butt in a chair and write for 30 years. And I think it's just sheer determination that at some level that you're going to keep writing. That no matter what happens in the publishing side of it, in the business side of it, that you're going to keep writing. And that's how I just handled it all the way through. Um, I never gave up. I had disappointments. I had, you know, moments of despair, but I never gave up. I continued to write, and it began to fall into place. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you find it hard to mix uh, business with artistic uh, nature and anything like that? I do because uh, you know I'm trying to be a, a voice artist over here, and but uh, I need to charge people money for it too. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I have no problems with it. Uh, I always set out to be a working writer, and, and in other words, I didn't want to have another job. I wanted to figure out a way that I could write for a living, and. I think because I thought of it that way right from the get-go, um, I had a different level of expectation versus someone who is a writing professor or an English professor and writes on the side. I was always after, no, 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 I want to actually be a commercial writer. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a it's a pretty big dream. Yeah, and, and it works. So that's all good. You know, the there's what I found. One of my philosophies I found uh, was from a guy named Sidney Lumet, who used to be a he was a great film director. He directed Tootsie and a whole bunch of other really good movies. And I read this little book that he wrote about his career. And I was struck by this thing that he said, that there are three reasons for an artist to do anything. One, they have to do it. It's their passion project. So that was beneath the scarlet sky for me. Two, the, the project turns you on because of the people you get to work with or the subject matter. Uh, or three, you need the money. <laughs> so and the need the money project pays for the first one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, oh, um, did any of your books get turned into movies? Um, they've been bought. Nothing has been made. Gotcha. So, people... the purification ceremony's been bought. Um, Labyrinth's been bought. Uh, Beneath the Scarlet Sky. Uh, has also been bought by Amy Pascal and Sony Columbia with um, Tom Holland attached to play Pino Lella. And if you don't know who Tom Holland is, he starred in Spider-Man last summer. I knew that uh, that name sounded awfully familiar. <laughs> yeah. That's impressive because that, that kid's going to get big. He's a very good actor. Yeah, absolutely. So he can, yeah, he can handle it. In fact, he's the one. He insisted. He and my son have always. He he came to my son's point of view that um, the it's, the book is better done uh, as a mini series than as a movie. So that's where we're going with it. I kind of feel that way about most books, given how much has to be cut out for every single movie ever made from a book. Right. That's exactly right. And that's what we did not want to have happen. So speaking Beneath of... the Scarlet Sky is an, it's an epic tale. So if you started cutting, you're going to lose the power of it. And luckily, the, the, the actor understood that. He's read the book five times. And uh, he said, if we cut it, we're going to ruin it. Wow. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of which, uh, what do you believe makes a great story? I think what makes a great story is an everyman hero put in extraordinary circumstances who rises and becomes beyond himself or herself. That's a great story. Yeah, absolutely. Any tactics of uh, telling the story that makes it better than any other method? For that kind of story? I think, you know, you have to understand that you're going to have to show the reader tick by tick the transformation of the hero. I'm so You're going to have to that. make them feel that. Yeah, they're going to you're going to have to feel it for it to be right. Um I've come to believe after writing for, you know, 30 years that in the end, emotion is all that remains when it comes to art. Yeah. We remember, you know, we have an impression of the story as years go by, but you'll never forget the emotion that the book triggered in you. Yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird, everybody remembers it. Everybody knows 
that something radically happened to you as a reader the first time you read it. And there's some places trying to remove that. That's fantastic. That was a fantastic book. Yes. Yeah, right? So the, the, the point is, is that you're always trying to, I think you're trying to inform and bring the character's emotions to the surface. That's what I'm always trying to do. Yeah, it's not always going to be If I can do that, no, it's not. It's not supposed to. So, if I can, if I can take the reader on a ride that they've never been before with people that they've never encountered before, I've done my job. There you go. I completely agree. So, um, so what was the influence behind the book Beneath the Scarlet Sky? Something you saw or came across a. Or read? Uh, actually, I heard the story on the worst day of my life. Uh, it was on a snowy day in February of 2006, and I was <clears throat> I my little brother and best friend had drunk himself to death. I had uh, had a book that tanked in the United States, and I was involved in this long, lingering business dispute that had taken me to the point of personal bankruptcy. And I was driving to a Costco on a snowy Montana highway, and I realized I was worth more dead than alive. And I considered driving into a bridge abutment in the snowstorm so my family could collect the insurance. I didn't do it. I was... But when I got to that Costco, I was as rattled as I've ever been in my life. Uh, And I put my head on the steering wheel and I begged God in the universe for a story, for a purpose, for something with meaning. And I sat there for about 20 minutes and I went in and did my shopping and I went home, didn't tell my wife. She had a stomach flu. Uh, She said, you have to go to a dinner party at the Robinsons. And I went, I'm not going to a dinner party. And she said, you have to, I, we've canceled three times. Just go for an hour and you could excuse yourself and come home. So I go to the dinner party, which is about three hours after my moment of crisis. And a perfect stranger starts telling me the story of Pinolella. That's how I found it. That's probably the most inspiring thing I've ever heard behind a book. It, it was why I paid attention. It was why I consumed 10 years of my life telling the story. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever considered writing an autobiography? Uh, no. 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 Oh, how unfortunate. I like other people's stories. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate that uh, yeah. form of selflessness. Yeah, I like telling other people's stories. That's what I was here. To, that's what I'm here to do. So, and I like doing it. It makes me. Uh, it makes me feel great that Pino Lella, for example, has gotten this you know incredible uh, response to his story, a story that was buried for seventy years. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a. I'd never heard of it. When you first started talking about it, the first thing I thought of was Sound of Music for some reason. Yeah. Because <laughs> of the. Yeah, it has that quality to it. Oh, yeah. Since they were marching uh, through Austria, I forget where they went. It's been years since I've seen the movie, but that was the first thing I thought of. Right. Yeah, it's. Uh, 
it's an amazing story. And when I first heard it, I was, I, I kept saying, that can't be true. We would have heard this story before. And then they said, oh, he's alive. And next thing I know, I'm getting off a plane in Milan and uh, Pino Lella picks me up. He's 78 years old. We get in this little Citroen car and he proceeds to start driving it like a Ferrari. Oh, man. And I was... I was just dumbfounded, and but it was important for me to see that because there's a lot of high performance driving in the story, and I and I believe it. I believe every bit of it just because of the way he does drive or did drive when he was still driving. And it was it was extraordinary. Yeah, that is extraordinary. Absolutely. Yeah. I do know that the Europeans take their performance cars very seriously. They do. Yeah. <laughs> They do. Yeah, Pino used to write for a, a motorsports magazine at one point, and so he was at Le Mans and all those big races in really? the pits usually. Yep. Motorcycles are mostly yep. my thing, but I uh, recently got myself oh, yeah. Yeah. He rode a motorcycle up until two years ago. Really? No, yeah, he was still driving a motorcycle at 89. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, you may have already covered this a little bit when you were talking about Tom Holland, but uh, do you have any say in the future production of uh, of Beneath the Scarlet Sky television event? Yes. Um, I have, they, they consult with me about actors. I'll be reading scripts. I'll be helping the director. Uh, I'll be an executive producer on the project. Uh, I have a lot of say. It's great. Thank you. Goodness, because my very first interview was with uh, Michael Dante DiMartino, another writer. He wrote the Last Airbender series, and that was made into right. a movie by M. Night Shyamalan. And I asked him, did you have right. any say? His answer was, no. And it was horrible. Right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, after you spend 10 years with a story, the fact is I understand the story better than anyone. You know, I understand the ramifications better than anyone so in the end it would have been stupid if they had excluded me yeah absolutely so they weren't they were smart they were like you're you know you're the expert we're going to turn to you so probably second to the main character you know the most yeah and even he didn't know a lot of the stuff you know having to do with the reasons things that he saw happen why they happened um so, you know, I was the one who dug through files and things in archives in Germany and Italy and Great Britain and the United States. Wow, that is an extreme level of diligence. I'm surprised that anybody goes beyond Googling something nowadays. Yeah, it wasn't going to work. Googling was not going to work. Yeah, I had to go back in and look at the files. I mean... I would imagine by now a lot of these things are starting to be digitized, so you can look at them. Uh, but at the time I was doing most of the grunt research, you couldn't get you could get you know access to indexes online, but you couldn't get access to actual files online. You had to go through microfiche and actually feed them in and read them. Wow, <laughs> that that is incredible. Because right right now I'm thinking about uh. The Game of Thrones series when uh, one of the characters was uh, trying to become a maester and he's reading through, well, probably a couple thousand foot tall library 
for the first time in his life. I remember that scene. Yeah, absolutely. I forget the character's name for the life of me because it's been like, what, over a year since the last episode aired? Uh. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. yeah. Um, That's... So speaking of which, um, with everything becoming digital, where do you see yourself in the future of writing going? In what sense, sir? Well, uh, when it comes to publishing um, or anything like that, trying to maintain monetization or getting your name out there in different ways, do you have any plans for that? Uh, you know, I when I decided to publish Beneath a Scarlet Sky, uh, when we were going out in search of a publisher, I wrote down that I wanted an editor who was as passionate about the story as I was and a publisher who could put it in the hands of as many people uh, as possible. And I got both when we decided that we were going to entertain an offer from Amazon on the story. And I went with Amazon's imprint called Lake Union, and it was phenomenal uh, because what they were able to do is they got the book into a program. At the time, it was called Kindle First. Now it's called Kindle First Reads. And what it is, is anyone who has an Amazon Prime account every month can download one of five books free. And that's what we did last April. Uh, we offered the book through Amazon Prime for free. And 300,000 people downloaded the book. And they started to read. And anybody who has any familiarity with the publishing business will tell you that the best thing that can ever happen to a book is word of mouth. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what happened. Because we had now 300,000 people who had agreed to read it. And from there, we started getting reviews on Amazon. And now, I can't remember what, I can look it up. I can't remember where we are, but... The last time I looked, we were approaching 17,000 reviews on Amazon with a five-star rating. That all happened because of the digitization of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Part of the reason why I ask is because, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners might be inspired by some of the crafts that we come across here on the show. So if they were aspiring sure. authors, you know, what would be the next step for someone who's already, you know, established and all those that good stuff? So I appreciate that. Sure. Uh, I was dumbfounded by it because we were able to reach so many people so fast. And now we're, you know, we're well over a million people have have this book. So that's amazing to me because when I left Italy after hearing the story the first time, I vowed that I was going to tell the story to as many people as possible. And, you know, we've, we've, got over a million readers and we're starting to produce a 10 part mini series. So I'm going to reach a lot of people with the story. That is fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Seriously. So, um, is there any kind of story you've ever wanted to write, but have never gotten around to it? No, um, I have a new story. I'm very excited about it. I can't talk about it because we haven't announced it yet. Uh -oh. uh, classified. But but it's classified. You know, they asked me to keep it quiet until they're ready to announce it. So 
you know, that's fine. I can do that. Um, but it's an amazing story in and of itself in that I heard the story less than 300 yards from where I heard Pino Lella's story. You're kidding me. No. I'd spent a lot since, you know, as you might imagine, since this book has been published, I've gotten approached a lot of stories. You should write about this. You should write about this. And I just kept waiting until one moved me. And it was a story that I heard within 300 yards of the of Pino Lella's story, which yeah. is just incredible. Everything comes full circle. That is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Yeah, you know, my agent said you should go and knock on the door of everybody in that neighborhood. Just ask them what their story is. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, what happened to you while you were growing up? Oh my God, that's fantastic. I'm gonna write about it. Right, right. Yeah, it probably would work in that neighborhood. I don't doubt it. Yeah, <laughs> magical place. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, a f- fun, weird little question. Um, so if there was a movie written about your life, because I've asked, um, you know if you wanted an autobiography done, and I personally think you should, especially after hearing that. Who would you want to play you, and why? Who do I want to play me? Uh, Bruce Willis, because he's kind of a wise ass, and so am I. That, oh, that is perfect. I love Bruce Willis. Me too. Uh, now you I think me, he's funny. Yeah, now you got me thinking about Pulp Fiction. Ugh. Sure. All these wonderful stories. So, um, so what would you say to a young potential writer if they asked for advice? I know you went kind of into the, you know, the future of publishing and all that, but if they walked up to you, what would you say? Um, read a lot. You can't be a writer unless you're a reader. It just doesn't work. Um, there's something about the rhythm of reading a lot of good writing and letting it find its way into your writing. So that's number one. Read a lot. Read all the time. Read till the day you die. That's part of the deal. Um, The other thing is write a lot. And people will constantly say, well, I don't have a lot of time. And I say, you don't need a lot of time. What you need is the same time every day. So figure it out. You know, if it means getting up an hour earlier to work for one hour, do it. And But do it every day. Every day that you can, do it. So it doesn't have to be this eight-hour deal. It can be an hour. And a lot of great books get written in an hour a day. It may take you 600 days to do it or whatever, but you can do it. And the other thing is to just constantly be a student of writing. When you read someone who blows you away, try to figure out why. How'd they do it? You know, it's like a somebody who's an artist and aspires to be an oil painter, well, you go to an art academy, and the first thing they do is they send you to a museum to actually sit there and look at paintings. How'd they do it? How was it constructed? How was it painted? And then they try to copy it. See that, And they find it. If they can copy it, they got a skill. So there's a skill in your back pocket. Yeah. It's the same thing with writing. Yeah, isn't that cool, though? I mean, think about it, because when you're running a business, you know, you have to think harder about what what uh, your clientele actually is versus what you want them to be. But as an artist or a writer, you don't need to care about that. It literally is about what shocks you and having people learn to appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I, what I've come to believe is that if it interests me and I write it, 
with the same level of interest, it'll interest someone else. Right. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I don't go after a specific demographic. You know, I write the stories that fascinate me and I hope people come along for the ride. Um, that doesn't mean I don't care what readers have to say. I'm heavily engaged with readers. Uh, I do a lot of, you know, uh, book clubs, appearances. I do a lot of public speaking appearances, and I really enjoy that aspect of it. But the primary job is reading and writing. Right, yeah. I mean, you you do need to ultimately express your own artistic nature before letting everyone else write the book for you. Because there's a lot of, I'll use video games as an example. Uh, there's video game companies that are listening a little bit too hard to, uh, you know, player feedback and uh, the stories begin to suffer. They don't take risks. Sure. They, don't, they don't do what they used to do in their elements of storytelling that uh, used to work. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, in the end, r writing a book is usually a product of one or one or two people. That's it. So you expect the writer to have an angle. You expect the writer to have a voice. Uh, Stephen King thinks that the most important thing about any piece of writing is the voice in which it's told in. And I agree with him. Yeah, that is absolutely you know, true. Sometimes it's it's hard to find the voice and that's why we end up putting a book down. But if the writer has hung in there long enough to figure it out, you know, you usually heavily engage and you get sucked in and you have the kind of experience you described earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, another, um, J R R Tolkien or, um, George R R Martin. That's the one I'm thinking of. They all have relatively the same, um, names um the writer of the um, of the game of thrones series once said the audience doesn't get to decide the story that's correct he's well, correct he also went to the Brazil school of journalism where i went really yes he graduated like three years before me it does i mean like with that being said that does in a sense help create what can be considered a perfect product though because that's that's all you and anybody else who likes it is, is in it because they share a vision with you or something like that. I think that's true. They've bought into your vision. And if you've created the vision as astounding as Martin has, right, it's just a remarkable thing. There's a whole contained world. Even though, and, and right down to the level of economics. I've, I've never read or seen anything like that where you actually understand that wars cost money. They talk about it all the time. Yeah, It's really do. smart. Yeah, it's really smart. And because of that, the level of... It, it, it just suggests such authenticity about the world that you can't help but be swept into it. It's remarkable stuff. Yeah, it's funny because, uh, you know, whenever people talk about modern war, I mean... The cost is always one of the things that people bring up, whether it's, um, you know, economics or life loss. But it's it's funny to see it in uh, different time periods and different universes. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that makes it work is that there's a level of grit and authenticity in the writing, irrespective of the fact that it's a total fantasy. Yeah, right. It makes it you know more relatable.
Yeah. More real. One of the great things about this has been not the fact that it sold a million copies, not the fact that it's been, it's going to be translated into like 32 languages or, you know, the mini series. The, the thing that really makes me happy are the letters that I get from people who were in deep despair or suicidal when they picked up the book and it changed them. And that to me is everything. Yeah, I absolutely, yeah, I completely agree. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crafty. The show was hosted by me, Nick Dole, and produced by Eric Lambiassi. We strive to share the experiences of amazing people that we might know and definitely love. Listen again in two weeks and stay crafty. podcast you just heard was recorded with anchor if you want to make your own download the android or ios app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast that's anchor.fm slash podcast